Hey, it's me, your barista. So you know how you come in almost every day for our cold foam coffee? Yeah, well, I might be putting myself out of a job by telling you this, but now there's an easy way to foam at home with new International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. With three new foaming flavors, French vanilla, sweet and creamy, and caramel macchiato, who could blame you if you stopped coming in altogether? Yeah, it's that foaming delicious. You're welcome. New International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. Now in stores. It's foaming delicious. You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is Crime Writers On, the podcast about other podcasts and also about journalism, pop culture, true crime. And this week, a podcast that takes a look at a very current issue and an ongoing trial. It's called 74 Seconds. So joining me right now is my true crime co-author and real-life husband, the host of the long-listed award-nominated podcast, <laughs> These Are Their Stories, the Law & Order podcast, Kevin Flynn. Good evening, Kevin. Becca, I want you to know you will always have my honest loyalty. We'll have to discuss this in a closed situation. <laughs> I can't discuss it in an open setting, okay? Very good. Also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed PI, and my favorite certified cat lady, Laura Bricker. Good evening, Laura. Good evening. And finally joining us is the co-host of Radio Free Dystopia and author of the City Trilogy of dystopic noir novels, our favorite naysayer of all the things that I yay say, Toby Ball. Good evening, Toby. Hi, Rebecca. Well, one quick programming note, guys. Uh, Next week, we're going to be talking about a podcast that a lot of people are already talking about. It's called Ear Hustle. Mm -hmm. They dropped their first episode the middle of next week. We are going to get to listen to it in advance. First time that's ever happened. Um, So we're going to be able to talk about it right as it drops, which is exciting. And for our audience members who have not heard of this podcast, it's actually produced inside of San Quentin Prison. There is by no, the inmates. By the inmates. There's no aspect of this podcast that is produced outside of San Quentin Prison except for probably the marketing and the internet part because they're not allowed to have internet there. Yeah. And if you have not yet heard the trailer for Ear Hustle, I think it's one of the best podcast trailers I have ever heard in terms of like setting up what the show is going to be and what to expect. I just love the trailer so much, and I'm excited to hear the first episode. So next week, we're going to talk about that first episode of Ear Hustle. So I would say to our audience, check it out. Programming note ended. (laughs) I'm excited. I'm excited to know how they have a media lab inside the prison. I'm excited As, to hear when about our high how they. School does it. <laughs> That's true. That's true. You want to learn something, kid? Go to jail. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm also excited to hear about. It sounds like it's going to be a little bit like This American Life, where it's not just going to be stories about the criminal justice system and stories about you know sad sack prisoner stories. It's going to be about life. But this time, when we tell people you shouldn't listen, none of them will have listened. <laughs> It's true. It's true. All right. Well, one thing that I also wanted to mention, uh, this is a callback to last week. We talked about the Keepers in a very popular episode, by the way, that's getting a lot of downloads. I think Mm -hmm. a lot of people like have watched the Keepers and want to hear people talk about it. And we've gotten a lot of feedback about one thing we forgot to talk about, about the Keepers. A one crazy thing. (laughs) And so I'm just going to do it right now. Um, There's a part in the Keepers where Jerry Koob, who was sister Kathy's boyfriend slash priest co-worker, talks about being interrogated by police when he was a suspect in her murder. And he claims in the documentary that police showed him Sister Kathy's vagina 
wrapped in newspaper. All right, who wants to I, say something about that? I'll go first. Okay. I call bullshit. I call bullshit. On like, him or on the cops? Really? On him. Are you kidding me? They they like took out her vagina, wrapped it in a bag and brought it into... I, I call bullshit on that. I, I didn't believe that when I saw it in the documentary. I thought it was fake. What do you think, Kevin? Yeah, I call bullshit too. I'm not sure whether it's the cops playing the worst good cop, bad cop thing ever. Well, how would they have done that? What, like gotten an well, organ from the butcher shop or something? And like just brought in, you know, went into the fridge and got somebody's lunch and threw it on the... <laughs> But, I mean, if he's like, oh, no, I could tell, and it had the pubic hair and everything, I'd just be like, okay, you're, you've lost Did me. he say that? He did not. I was going to say. No, but I, I'm, look, it makes no sense in the area, like, why would they even have that as evidence? Well, so, it's not. It's not. I know. It's crazy. I'm just saying, I wouldn't want to put my lunch in the same office lunchroom as wherever that vagina apparently was being kept cold. <laughs> what about you, Toby? What did you think of that? Because, you know, you, like me, were very intrigued by Jerry Coop as a character, but that was really, like, one very strange thing that he claimed, right? You know, actually, I I did a little research, and it, it's not that unusual. What? What? Wait, Okay, what? wait for, a for cops to keep vaginas wrapped in newspaper. <laughs> oh no, I, it's, uh, I, it, it's... It's bizarre. <laughs> like I, I don't even know. I don't even know how you come up with that story. Because for most of the rest of the time, he comes off as being kind of a thoughtful, sort of even-tempered kind of guy, and then he starts talking about that, and it just—he lost you there. Is yeah. that what you're saying? Well, it's just—it's such an unconvincing story to begin with, and it's like, what are you trying to? What's the point of this story? And why are you making it up? It's just bizarre. Well, but anyway. The only thing I can think of that makes any sense is that if the detective interrogating him, his theory was that this was a psychosexual murder and that her sex organ would uh, somehow trigger something her in him as the killer. Organ. Yeah. <laughs> as, and as a priest who is supposed to be verboten, he's not supposed to see that, whether that would be shocking enough to get something out of him. I don't really think it was Right, well, I actually, I mean, I did think that, because that would be, I mean, now keep in mind, this was way pre, like, CSI, and way pre all the procedural cop shows we know now, you know, Law and Order. It's pre, well, it's pre every, like, cop interrogation scene type thing that we're familiar with, right? Yeah. The one thing I thought of was that maybe this was like a shock trick that was being used yeah. to try to get him to talk. Maybe it was literally like they stopped and picked up a liver at the butcher shop. Yeah. Anyway. I mean, that that's possible. <laughs> no, no, no. I can the one on the left. That, but that looks more definitely... vagina-like. That one. That one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, Laura, you see what I'm talking about. Like, no, it was definitely I, I, not a vagina. Get behind that. Yeah. You know, it's like when you order the cats to like, you know, cut up in biology class or whatever. Like, you know, maybe there's mm-hmm. a place you order these from. I don't know. But I, I could get behind it being kind of like a tactic. But there's no way it was her actual. Well, the other DJ. thing, if it, too, is if it was a tactic, you would think that Jerry Koob in 2017 would be able to say, oh, and one of the things they did was they wrapped something in newspaper and showed it to me and they claimed it was her vagina. Now that I've yeah. seen one, <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you. This lends more to my, you know, I can see why they maybe considered him a suspect because that seemed kind of odd to me. Like that was when his oh, sort it? of, fa- well, you know what I mean? Like his facade started to like, well, okay, if this guy is going to say something this ridiculous, maybe he's not all quite as nice at face value as he is seeming. Like maybe there's something else going on with this guy. That's right. Because that, right. that, was, that, was, that was just crazy talk. All right, Kevin, it's time for us to move on to the next part of our conversation. Can you read that, please? True Crime Podcast Update. Today, there was a big 
legal proceeding that got a lot of attention nationwide. No, it was the other one. <laughs> You're not talking about the one in Washington? <laughs> no, I'm talking about the one right next door in Baltimore that happened. Uh, Adnan Syed's appeal appeal <laughs> uh, got heard. Obviously, arguments were made in front of this panel of judges around the overturning of his trial and then the state's appealing of that overturning of the trial. Yeah, it's really the state's appeal. Now, Kevin, there were no cameras in for this. We know it was a relatively short proceeding, but I did send you the Twitter handles of some very <laughs> smart journalists who I knew would be live tweeting and tweeting about it afterwards. Yeah. And uh, what were you able to glean? By the way, we're taping this just a couple hours after it ended, so yeah. we don't have the analysis from anybody like Legal Siri yet. What were you able to glean from people like Jesse De Silva tweeting from the courtroom? Oh, I certainly appreciate that they also- like, Is she the best? Jessie yes, Silva? yeah. I mean, like, put her 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 notes in, and also tweeted out video of all the press conferences afterwards, press availabilities, including Rabia. So that that was very helpful. So again, okay, so this was the state appealing Judge Welch's ruling that overturned Anand's conviction, and they're looking again at the three issues. This was these were arguments in front of three judges, thirty minutes apiece. Again, it wasn't going; to, it wasn't scheduled to go on for days like the uh, the appeal in front of Judge Welch more than a year ago. And there were the three main issues that are up again. So it's did Adnan receive ineffective assistance of counsel because Christina Gutierrez failed to contact Asia McLean? Effective inassistance of counsel because she failed to ask for a plea deal? And was it ineffective assistance of counsel based on her failure to use the AT&T disclaimer to cross-examine the state's cell tower expert. And on this the argument- famous facts cover sheet. Yeah, the facts cover sheet. Now, on this argument, they also have to take into consideration a few things like, did Anon previously waive his right to argue that point on appeal? All right, so we talked about whether or not the judges would be up to speed on the case that the rest of us know so much about. Did it appear from what you saw the judges were up to speed on the case? Yeah, I think a lot of people said it, including Justin Brown, who's a non-appellate attorney, said that he Who I met, by the way. Yeah. Oh, I know him a little bit. He's a good-looking guy. Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah, he's fit and everything. <laughs> All right. Uh, okay, so Former my reporter, I put my jealousy aside. Yeah, he knew what he was doing in front of a camera. Um, yeah, he said that he was actually very, not surprised, that he was very pleased that the judges were all sharp. They knew all of the details of the case. They had, you know, obviously read the filing. So, yeah, they were, uh, by all accounts, appeared to be up to date on all the minutiae. And what's really interesting is, is from what I, I hear from the reports, is that, look, they have the written briefs, the three judges, and they know this. And so now when they make the oral arguments and they, there's Q&A back and forth from the judges, they're telegraphing a little bit about what they're thinking. Right. And they spent a lot of time dealing with the question of Asia McLean, right. which to me was odd because it wasn't a point that the defense truly won on appeal. Mm -hmm. The judge said, yeah, you know, you're right, but it's the point is basically moot because of the facts cover sheet and, right. you know, the timeline of the state. So if, I mean, you can handicap based on what they say, what the decision might be. You, it, it's hard to tell. But that says to me that it's possible this panel may also rule in favor of Adnan's defense on the Asia McLean thing, actually, which would be in ba like in baseball terms, it's an insurance run. Right. I actually think it's because the prosecution side put so many of their eggs in the Asia McLean basket in terms of that not being an issue, and I think that's why all the questions. Came yeah, because there were very few questions about cell towers. Right. There were some questions about did he wave the issue. And, and that's like one of those legal loophole technicalities. Does he have the right to bring it up? 
at this point and and whatnot. And, and some things may pivot on that. So we'll just have to, again, see where it goes from here. I got the impression from what Justin Brown and the reporters were tweeting afterwards that the lack of questions about the cell tower evidence actually played to the strength of that argument in the previous appeal. Yeah, they got it. Yeah, they they got understood it. that. They, they have questions. It. Yes. Yeah. And they're, right. either saying, they're either telling those attorneys, okay, give me a reason to rule in your favor right. or I really want to challenge you because I don't right. believe it. So what happens next? Well, 100% the loser is going to appeal to the Maryland Court of Appeals. Oh, great. So we have like two more years of talking about this. Oh, yeah. This. <laughs> yeah. Which could be up to 12 months. Right. Um, uh, look, that court doesn't have to hear the case. They can choose not to hear it and let a lower court ruling stand. But uh, this would be the first time – this is a legal theory point that I, th- that I thought was worth sharing. This would be the first time that the Court of Appeals addresses the standard for ineffective assistance of counsel in connection with expert evidence. Mm-hmm. Which is the whole thing about the, the facts cover sheet. about the facts cover sheet? Yep. Uh, since there was a, they overturned a, a big ruling in 2015 involving a guy who was convicted by a scientific test which compared lead from the bullet that he allegedly fired to lead found in his truck. Now it's a test that in subsequent years had been ruled unreliable and inadmissible. It didn't pass the Fry rule. Exactly. Oh, yeah. yeah. Look at me. Legal yeah, Series yeah, taught me something. Well, yeah, there should have been a Fry <laughs> hearing on it. Yes. So there's that. But look, if the state loses this appeal, which, you know, they would, again, appeal it. If they also lose this appeal, I think just in the practical sense, it puts more pressure on them to come up with a deal and cut bait. All right. Before we move on, Kevin, can I have you read this for me? True crime update. Laura Bricker. Yes. Kevin's assignment was to read a Twitter feed. Your assignment (laughs) was to to track down and try to distill for us the 1,200-page document filed by... 1,272. Yes. Oh, 1,300-page document filed by (laughs) Stephen Avery's flashy attorney, Kathleen Zellner, on his behalf in court this week. Now, to be fair... All 1,200 pages were not available, but there were some pages and a lot of reporting about what's in it available. And so can you please tell us what is happening in the Making a Murderer case, the Stephen Avery appeal? He, of course, is sitting in prison for the murder of Teresa Hallback, and we all saw that unfold in that Netflix documentary, Making a Murderer. What was in this thing, Laura? So much stuff. But there was also some information on Twitter. I just have to. So uh, his attorney tweeted out to his supporters, stay strong. The truth is on your side. <laughs> OK. <laughs> Good Very to know. dramatic. Helpful. After oh, she filed this. T- I know. <laughs> <That's an Adobe>. <laughs> <laughs> um, she tweets a lot. So basically, she within these 1,270 pages, there is five arguments that she's all using as an alternative, saying he's entitled to a new trial in the interest of justice. Mm-hmm. So the five things that she pointed out, ineffective defense counsel, ethics violations by Ken Kratz, the prosecutor, Brady violation, new evidence, and then allowable claim. I don't really understand that one so well. But there's one that's more, much more interesting than all the rest. So I'm going to just give you the quick snapshot of the first few, because one of these is just something that I have never heard of before. Are you talking about the brain fingerprinting, which is totally yes. bananas? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yes. All right. So before you get there, can you talk about the new suspect she points to in this document? Yes. I think so, that is the, the blockbuster sort of point here, right? 
Yeah, so that was, uh, you know, one of these claims, she's arguing that the previous motions that he's filed after he was convicted shouldn't bar him from bringing a claim forward in in which she's basically trying to pin the murder on the ex-boyfriend. Remember, I think that was the boyfriend that was featured in the documentary and there was some inf- there wasn't there some, something weird with the cell phone and him calling her and anyway, knowing the he, he the erased voice. the messages. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, Toby's right. Um, and and he was the one who sort of led the very public search of the Avery junkyard. He was the one who was like, let's go find the car. And then lo and behold, 45 minutes later, they found the car. Yeah. So she's she's claiming that he had motive and opportunity and that he basically misled the investigators about the damage to her vehicle. And also that the jury didn't hear any evidence about the ex-boyfriend. So that this is why it's okay to bring this up now. So the ineffective defense counsel, that's, you know, alleging that Dean Strang, my favorite. My boyfriend. Yes. We're going to fight over Jerome. (laughs) Yes. Well, you know, I lifted some weights today, Rebecca, so (laughs) I I don't know. Surrender Um, Dorothy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So she, she, you know, these uh, notice is alleging that they failed to represent Stephen Avery because they didn't put expert witnesses up to talk about DNA and blood spatter evidence. Ken Kratz, we've already talked. Yeah, we've talked about Ken Kratz quite enough. But this new evidence, this this is the part that people are going to fixate on. She's breaking down new scientific testing that she had done on Avery, including brain scanning, brain fingerprinting. I'm sorry. Has anyone ever heard of that before? No. Not until okay. I read that little summary of this thing. Yes. Is it going to be on next week's SVU? Totally. Well, that's exactly. I was like, this sounds like a CSI episode, seriously. So what it is, it's a technique used to determine whether specific information is stored in a person's brain. And she's saying that they did brain fingerprinting on Stephen Avery to determine that he did not take part in this crime. Obviously, this is kind of like lie detector type stuff. It's it's kind of controversial. People are saying it's unproven and questionable. Uh, what? Surprise, surprise. Uh, developed by a man named Lawrence Farwell. And he uses EEG. So he uses this to determine whether information is stored in someone's brain. And so unlike a polygraph or lie detector, which it's usually, you know, kind of compared to, he claims the accuracy is much better because this lies in the ability to pick up the electrical signal known as a P300 wave before the person has time to affect the output, like somebody trying to change how they're reacting to a lie detector test. Hmm. I did find like one case where this was used, and it wasn't really used so much as to sway the result, but just mentioned that it had been done. Was it in a Scientology uh, situation that you heard that this had been used? (laughs) I know. Was it on the cruise to somewhere? Well, this is this is my question. The Ouija board evidence was inconclusive. (laughs) Well, this is this is my question. I mean, Toby, I know that you are the sort of the natural skeptic among us. And you may have your own feelings about the case and his potential culpability. But here we have a set of, to me, what seem like cogent legal arguments about alternative suspects and an effective assistance of counsel. I think the boyfriend narrative is actually very interesting. And I think that that in the documentary, I think the documentarians thought it was interesting. And that's why, you know, I probably think it's interesting because they showed some of that weirdness. But, Toby, do you feel like when a lawyer also puts something like this in here, when wasn't this case did this case also have another fry situation with the um, testing of the blood that was also a matter at dispute in this case was the test they did determine the, whether the blood had been tampered with uh, the, it had a compound yeah, you know in the blood about. 
So, Toby, I guess my question for you is, does a brief like this, like, lose credibility when it includes something like this brain fingerprinting with you? With me? Yes, with you. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know a thing about brain fingerprinting, but just on the face of it, it seems like a little sketchy. And by a little, I mean a lot. (laughs) A little bananas. Um, (laughs) The other thing is, like, the idea that there was ineffective counsel... You know, I realize there's probably things that they could have done or whatever, but it seems to me the counsel that he received, like if that's ineffective, then like it seems 90% of the people who are in jail can probably claim ineffective counsel, right? Right, right. I mean, that's, (laughs) which, which, you know, I'm not denying that that would be the case, but it just seems like if you're willing to grant that as ineffective counsel, there's a hell of a lot of people who could also claim it. Yeah. And it's, it's, Laura, it's a very hard thing to argue and prove. And we've heard that a lot in the Adnan Syed case, how difficult it is to prove ineffective assistance. And we did see this well-funded defense by these two lawyers that America fell in love with, right? So isn't that, doesn't that also make it a little bit difficult to swallow this whole appeal document when you see that? Yeah. I mean, and I think, you know, the other thing about this appeal, like 1,272 pages and I, I get it. There's a lot going on. You're advocating for your client. You you want to do the best that you can. You don't want to be ineffective. I mean, how can anyone, you know, but it's almost like what's going to stick? Let's throw 1,272 pages out there and see if there's like one thing in there, if somebody can even get through all of this. This ineffective claim comes up a lot because if there's any one little thing that somebody can fixate on that wasn't done, but but it has to really be shown that that really impacted the outcome of the case. Well, you just read about these capital cases where it turns out that the uh, defense attorney was drunk or he fell asleep or, mm-hmm. you know, he was – and these are capital cases. Or so he, the was, idea he was that, a public defender with no resources who had an hour to right, look at it before trial. Right. So if we're willing to execute people despite that, like the idea that you could argue that Strang and Buting were ineffective counsel – it seems strange. And I, you know, I, he certainly should try anything he, he can. But I think what both the Ednan stuff and this, I think, points out is <laughs> kind of how hopeless it must be for like your average person in jail to think that they're going to be able to affect any way of getting out early. Right. I mean, these, these guys are well-resourced. They have a lot of people paying attention uh, they have all these advantages that 99.9% of people in, in prison do not have. And it's still, it's this incredible ordeal. Right. If I was listening to this stuff and I was in prison, I would be despairing of my chances. Here are my two takeaways from reading uh, what I was able to read from this brief and then also reading about it. Kathleen Zellner is a character. In addition to being like a defense attorney who's actually gotten people off, she's also a bit of a, a character. Dog. Yeah. And she and it's part of her brand to do this whole like boom it, mic drop moments mm-hmm. on social media and this whole show and this whole like the truth will prevail. And Strang and Buting are so understated and like <laughs> normal. And um, the thing is, they ha- are still like, I don't know if they're still doing it, but even as of a few months ago, they were doing this tour where they were having like the, the justice conversations. And they're basically like, you know, you could go see Strang and Buting talk about their work on this case. And they believe that Stephen Avery, I think they both believe that Stephen Avery did not commit this murder. They're both pretty committed to his defense still. They both talk about the problems with the case. And I think 
that they might agree that a lot of the stuff around alternative suspects is something that they wish they had been able to look at more or bring in more. Mm -hmm. But I think it must be weird for them to, in this new brief of this person that they've been continuously championing, to to have these claims of ineffective assistance. I mean, the difference between them and Christina Gutierrez is that she's dead and they're alive. (laughs) And they still talk about this case publicly and they still talk about it being somewhat of an injustice. I don't know, Kevin, what do you think? I I think that a lot of attorneys, defense attorneys especially, are used to former clients. Yeah, they get it all the time, right? Yeah. Yeah. And judges are used to, you know, hearing that, uh, you know, someone is appealing their ruling. I mean, that's just part of the the justice system. And I guess you you know that you did a good job and, you, you know, even if the court finds that you were ineffective, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that you didn't. Well, I guess it does mean you did a poor job. Well, what do you think of these alternative theories? Do you think that uh, do you think I think it's I think it's very unusual for that to be part of a brief? We mean the brain fingerprinting. No, no, no. The the accusation of naming an alternative suspect. Right. That's something that you see at trial. Right. That usually these briefs are all about process, the law. right? Right. Right. What legal things went wrong and sort of this other stuff. For example, like in the non case, no one says, oh, well, the cell phone evidence, you know, not only does it cast doubt on whether or not it was actually in Lincoln Park, it actually shows that John Smith was there. Right. This is not the way it's done. Uh, yeah, I think it's unusual. Right, right. So, Kevin, um, you, I think, are the only one among us who's sort of been keeping up with the Brennan Dassey case. What's right. going on with him? Well, he, if. Ironically enough, he's sort of in the same situation that Anon is in, right? A federal magistrate overturned his conviction over the summer, and now— He was supposed to get out and didn't. Right. Now the state is appealing that decision, and it's going to go also in front of a three-judge panel. But no date has been set for that. So so his his course is going to follow pretty much like what Anon's is. And, and so we don't know if and when he will be released. We just know that uh, when he is released, he just wants to do two things. He wants to watch WrestleMania. Yep. And he wants to sit on his couch enjoying the great European mysteries, dramas, and comedies that he can see on MHZ Choice. I don't think he said that he wants that. Streamed right to his computer, TV, or favorite device. I don't think that Brandon Dassey ever has said that. I'm not saying I'm coercing him to say that, but I know that... I feel in my heart that he does. He would do that. All right, why would he want to do that? Because he enjoys award-winning series like The Face of Crime, The Godless, and Almost Perfect Crimes. These are the great crime series that are coming out of Europe, things that always are the inspiration for the best stuff over here in America. Right. And so why not see them now in their original language? Do it. I'm watching right now this series out of Sweden. It's called Hamilton. It's not called that. It is. It's not that Hamilton. Okay. okay. It's Hamilton (laughs) who is a, he is a spy. And it starts off, it tells you specifically that in Sweden, none of their intelligence officers have a license to kill. But they can use deadly force in self-defense or if it is in the interest of the nation. So you know that guy is going to be messing people up. You know someone's going to kill right. somebody. Yeah, he's eventually going to kill somebody. But there's a lot of like throwing people through mirrors <laughs> and hitting, wow. you know, fist fights and explosions as he takes on arm dealers. It's great. And just for a change of pace, I also checked out uh, this French series of shorts called The Bureau of Sexist Affairs. Ooh, I, I love like The Bureau it. of Sexist well, Affairs. Yeah, they're, they're like three-minute bits, and they're they're funny. Is it about sexism? It's about a judge who hears, like, sexual harassment cases. Yeah. And, you know, it's got a very French flavor and very, very funny. So the way you get this is you go and get a subscription to MHZ Choice, 
and their library includes over 2,500 hours of binge-worthy TV for only $7.99 a month. You get great dramas and crime shows from France, from Germany, all over Scandinavia. Scandinavia is my favorite source of crime stuff, for yeah. sure. Yeah, so if you try MHZ Choice, you can do it for free for 30 days, and after that you'll save 50% off your first month. Cheap. So visit mhzchoice.com slash writers and use code writers at checkout. That's mhzchoice.com slash writers. Anything else you want to talk about that Brendan Dassey might be into, Kevin? Yeah, I'm sure that (laughs) his skin will not be very smooth after getting out of that horrible jail. Probably not. Which is why we should all chip in and send him a whole package of Kapari products. Oh, God. <laughs> we I, should. I, I think so. I think, you know, it's it's good for all of us, too, because let's face it, all that fun in the sun can take a toll on your skin and hair. All that hanging out in the junkyard can take a toll yeah. on your skin and hair, too, right? Hanging out in the, in the yard, working out. Oh, yeah. 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 That's why one of our favorite things this summer is Kapari Beauty's line of body products, all made from 100% organic coconut oil. Now, guys, we already know that we have Kapari's Coconut Melt. Yep. There's Sheer Oil. Yep. The Intensive Coconut Balm. Love it. And the Coconut Body Glow. Yep. Rebecca, you rubbed the Coconut Balm with aloe all over my back last time we went on vacation. I had all that sunburn. Oh, I did. And I also coconut melted the heck out of your legs when they started to peel. I'm a big fan of the coconut products, as you know. Yeah. And I think, Laura, you're a fan of the Coconut Body Glow because you like the shimmer it gives you, right? I do like the shimmer. And after the long, very dry winter here in New England... Your legs get kind of scaly like a snake or something. Yeah. So it's 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 definitely really effective. And, and it smells great. And now you are in sun goddess condition. I know. And I am actually yes. almost out of many of my Kapari products. So I cannot wait for you to read that promo code, please. Okay. Ahead, do it. <laughs> write this down, Rebecca. You can say aloha to the best skin and hair this summer. Smell with like an almond joy. Kapari. That's kaparebeauty.com slash crime. Kapari with a K. To get... 20% off your order. That's Kopari, K-O-P-A-R-I, beauty.com slash crime, crime for 20% off. Kopari, beauty.com slash crime. You know, I love it. I do. I love it. I was pissed that you gave some of mine away to your daughter, oh, even I though know. I love her. Oh, I'm I, thinking about taking it back. Yeah, you, know, you take the food right out of her mouth, too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on. Uh, we're going to talk about a podcast this week called 74 Seconds. This is a podcast about the July 2016 shooting of motorist Philando Castile in St. Anthony, Minnesota, by police officer Euronimo Yanez. The case, of course, gained international attention because the aftermath of the shooting, including Castile's death, was broadcast on Facebook Live by Castile's girlfriend, Diamond Phillips, who, along with her four-year-old daughter, was in the car with Castile when he was shot and killed. For our listeners who haven't listened to this podcast, it's a little bit unusual because there are four episodes of narrative journalism, and then they timed that to drop very shortly before the trial of Yana was set to begin. So now they are doing a series of trial update episodes. So in some ways, it reminds me a little bit of Breakdown in terms of its form and format. I did misspeak last week when I said we were going to be talking about this. I said it was by the same folks who made In the Dark. That is close, but not quite accurate. And I just want to clarify, it's a little bit inside baseball, but I think it's going to be relevant to our discussion. In the Dark was produced by APM Reports, which is a unit at Minnesota Public Radio slash American Public Media that is making narrative long form podcasts. 
74 Seconds is a product of Minnesota Public Radio's newsroom. Oh. So it is not the podcast production unit. This is a newsroom-oriented show. That explains something to me that I'll well, get to later. Well, that's yeah, what yeah, I want to talk yeah. about. So, Laura, I'd like to hear your take. I mean, we were both big fans of In the Dark. Mm-hmm. I'd love to hear your take on just the presentation and style. Let's leave the trial episodes secondary, okay? Let's mm-hmm. talk about those four story episodes where they sort of laid out the case. What did you think of those four episodes as a product in terms of its production and storytelling and journalism style? I liked the first four. I'll start off with that because I, I didn't like the second half, but I liked the first four because this was, you know, a case that I had seen. Obviously, we had, I think most of us seen some of this uh, because it was on Facebook Live and it was all over the news. Uh, But I didn't know a whole lot behind the scenes. The part that I felt like they struggled with, though, is, you know, this case is pre-trial and it sounded like it was very hard for them to get access to people pre-trial to actually talk about these people. So they were compiling a lot of information that had already been reported, trying to find past interviews or trying to find somebody that would talk. So it was a good kind of overview of the case leading up to the trial. I thought it was, you know, we broke out each character kind of individually and went through the information that was out there. I think the episode that really was most effective was the one where they actually broke down second by second what happened Mm -hmm. the night of the shooting. But I felt like for me, you know, and I understand timing wise, they're trying to do it before the trial. But I kind of wonder if after the trial, you might have been able to get much more information because people seemed reluctant to talk before this was resolved. Toby, what did you think of the uh, presentation and production of the story as it was presented in the first four episodes of 74 Seconds? I really liked it. I thought it was laid out very clearly. I thought you got a pretty good sense of who the players were. The audio, and then if you look it up, the video of what what actually happened is just incredibly affecting, I think. So I, there was that. I mean, it, it had a sort of emotional impact, I guess, in a way that was more visceral than, than a lot of the podcasts we listened to. So it felt, I guess, very immediate. Yeah, I, I, I really thought they did a good job. Enjoyed it is not, I don't think, the right term, but I found it really interesting, and I sort of plowed through the first four very quickly. Yeah, I'm with Laura. I think the first four are very different from the trial updates, and I like them. They're short or tight, which is good. I didn't feel like they had to inflate it from a 22-minute episode to a 50-minute episode with a lot of extraneous stuff. And I think that's kind of like when you see the difference between when you tell me this was put together by a newsroom versus... Sounds like it, right? Yeah, it's a little more concise and precise and less precious in its storytelling, which is also kind of where I think it flounders as a podcast right. on the update side, only because, well, maybe you want to talk about that I later. I want to talk about but, those separate. To me, it's, but, two, yeah. it's almost like two shows. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think that the choice of having two narrators is novel and sometimes helps and sometimes hurts it. But I thought, you know, they did a good job of breaking each one down. And I do think, like Laura said, the most effective episode was the TikTok when they went through those 74 seconds. Right. I actually feel like episodes three and four were both very strong. That was when I tweeted, like, I'm listening to this and I'm loving it. Uh, I'll tell you what I hear when I hear this. So I sit in a public radio newsroom. Like, I sit in one. I sit right across from somebody who is doing those edits every day. I actually hear in the final product what sounds like a very pared down 
result of a news edit. I actually feel like I almost hear stuff having been cut out. And I think my theory as to why they have the two narrators is that there is sort of a rule in radio news production that doesn't exist in the narrative podcast sphere where, like, you can't hear the reporter talk for too long. Otherwise, it's considered, I don't know, boring or sort of against formatic rules. You know, you would know about this because you used to be a radio reporter before you were a TV reporter. Yeah, well, we never went on for... I almost, I mean, public media is very But I almost but yeah. feel like the reason they have the two narrators is because they thought the narration needed to be broken up. Mm-hmm. And I feel like in some parts of the show, that's that works. And in other parts, it sounds like they're only doing it because they feel like the narration needs to be broken up when it necess- didn't necessarily need to be broken up. And I feel like the first episode is a little awkward I mean, in you've that talked way. enough, Rebecca, apparently. <laughs> well, I feel like the first episode is a little awkward. I mean, the first episode to me, you know, and maybe it's just because of my perspective, and I, I sometimes hear stuff get out of cut, cut out of stories for the radio that I wish the reporter had been allowed to keep in. And I feel like maybe there was some stuff on the cutting room floor. But the show starts to sing a little bit, I think, when episode two is in its second half and three and four – I think that Geronimo Yana's background episode is strong, and I think that the protest episode is very strong, and they tape very, very well. So, Toby, one of the things that really, really they do a great job of kind of bringing home is that impulse that Philando Castile's relatives have, and everybody that is interviewed by the press has immediately after the shooting to stress again and again and again that he's a person who doesn't get in trouble with the law. He does not have a past where he's, like, in trouble with the law. And they do, I think, a good job laying out that impulse and why it matters. What did you think of that tape that we heard in this podcast? Yeah, it's certainly not just in this particular case, too. There's a couple things going on. One is sort of general societal, you know, assumptions about young black men. In addition, you have uh, death by the hand of a, of a policeman. When you have those two factors together and... You have a person like Castile, who who seems like, by all accounts, just a normal guy. Like, the default is not, he's a normal guy. So you, you have to make that point. When I lived in D.C., I had a friend, Vincent, who was African-American guy, about my age. And in his office, he had a photo. It was in a frame that said, I'm a black man and I am not a criminal. Mm. Which always kind of struck me, because he was... It seemed like he was, he was, you know, he was a pretty straight and narrow guy. I thought that was a pretty powerful statement that he had that prominently displayed in, in one of the public places where he was seen. That it was a statement that he needed to make and you felt like he didn't need to make it, but he felt like he needed to make it right. because of the well, way isn't, things are. Yeah. Isn't this about the media narrative, though? I mean, Laura, the, the media narrative, as soon as somebody is shot by a cop, like the next day, it seems that all the news reports and you always hear like the troubled past of this mm-hmm. person who was obviously murdered by this police officer on video or maybe obviously to a lot of people murdered the troubled past with marijuana or his previous arrests. For, doesn't it seem like that's always the immediate narrative that, that follows somebody's shooting at the hands of police? Yeah, well, I I don't know if it's that. I think that the inclination whenever there's, I know for me, when I covered stories like that as a reporter, as a journalist, the first thing you want to do, you know, is you start trying to find out the background of the person. And so, yes, when you, and one of the ways you do that is go to the court and see if there's any prior criminal record. Because I think, you know, instinctively, you, you sort of in your head are thinking, well, if this person was you know involved with the police, 
they've probably been involved before, because that's just naturally where your mind starts to go um, when there's a situation like that. And and as you were talking about this, it kind of reminded me there was a section in this podcast where they talked about the media bias and one of the police trainers saying that they weren't even going to allow these reporters to learn about the training and everything because they were coming into it already with a bias that they didn't even realize they had. Right. So that that was something that, you know, you, you like to think that you're open-minded and that you're not going into something with a preconceived idea. But, you know, I know I am and, and I don't mean to, but I think that's just how we're programmed. I think sometimes when reporters go into a story that it's an officer who shot somebody, they, they want to know, okay, why, what happened? And there are, in some cases, you can say the two sides of the story. You've got the officer and you've got the victim. And it's sometimes it's, who tells the story first? Right. I walk and I have no idea. All I have is this. Who's going to tell me so I can write this down on my pad, their version of things First, and who's and, got and a PR the, person? The police or the PR victim's person. family? And a lot of look, a lot of times, police. We can't say anything because of the case and blah 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 blah. But dot dot dot. But you know, they may intimate, especially look, if, if it's a quote unquote good shoot. It, you know, if it's a bad shooting, that's one thing. If it's, if it's a justified shooting, then maybe it's because oh, the guy drew on him, or there was there was something that you know a precipitating factor which makes it a justifiable use of deadly force. All I hear is this but, when yeah. I hear that. I don't give a shit what somebody was arrested for or did before they were shot by a cop when they did not have a gun in their hand. Yeah, probably a week ago doesn't matter. But this is is the narrative that emerges over and over and over again, and I think it is so tragic. This family, by the way, you talk about the way you see a lot in media around criminal cases, not just shootings by police, but say murder cases, right? Very often a victim's family, when they are... I want to say like people of means with lawyers, they are good at dealing with the media in terms of they have been told like, this is what you need to do. You need to provide every flattering photograph you can of your victim slash family member because those are the images that you want out there. When you're asked about the investigation, you need to say, we're not going to talk about this while the police do their work. You know, there's a lot of kind of coaching that goes in with victims' families. Philando Castile's family had this instinct to behave perfectly, I think, because of the way that victims of police shootings have been treated in the media for decades. I mean, if you look at the way that, you know, it's like it's like the day after we have video of a cop up close shooting somebody for no reason. The next story that comes out because somebody in the police department often leaks it is their troubled history of being pulled over or their troubled history of being arrested. It's like enough. And this family is so emblematic of that statement of just saying like enough we're not going to play that we're not going to go with that we're going to be proactive against i thought it was it's fascinating and tragic and i think that that's some of the best tape Mm. in this podcast as well let's talk about that facebook live that's the integral whole thing with this case right it's why it's national news why it's national news you have philando's girlfriend diamond deciding to video his death and the aftermath of the shooting in its entirety and broadcasting it live and so preternaturally calm during that broadcast and that tape of, of she and her daughter in the cop car afterwards where her daughter is comforting uh. her. Laura, how, how, when you hear this, and you know you don't actually hear the shooting, so it, it is all aftermath. What do you think about this whole phenomenon of this live broadcast of this event and how it has affected the public awareness of this case? I was just struck listening to it. In the beginning, how she's able to stay so calm 
And it's almost like you're like, wow, I'm sure she's just in shock. But as things continue and she gets more upset and then listening to the police talking to her was like even more upsetting because I felt like now she's being treated here. Her boyfriend is dying. She's got a little kid in the car. And it's like it was upsetting to listen to. I think the most upsetting part to listen was when you hear the little kid in the back seat going, it's okay, mama, I'm here with you or whatever she said. It was Mm -hmm. just heartbreaking. But it really the fact that it kept rolling was the part that amazed me, that it didn't get turned off, that even when the phone fell on the ground and you hear her say, my phone's on the ground, we can still hear all the background noise and we can hear like the other things that are going on. Yeah, like after the cop shoots her boyfriend, they're still telling her to walk backwards with her hands in the air and treat her like... The suspect. That's what I mean. That's the part that was so upsetting. It was like, seriously, she's got a little kid with her. Like, where's... And I understand. It's, It's a hard balance, but... Yeah. Toby, what did you think of the, um, as Kevin described it, the TikTok episode where they break down the 74 seconds between Castile being pulled over and his shooting? I thought it was interesting. The whole time I was listening to it, I, you know, part of what I was thinking about was the different assumptions that are made about traffic stops based on the race of the person who's in the car that's been stopped. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think. You know, when people talk about white privilege, one of those things is sort of the stress-free traffic stop. Exactly, yeah. Where you're going to be pulled over, you're like, okay, yeah, I I rolled through that stop sign, and I'm not worried that a cop is going to overreact and, you know, pull a gun on me or shoot me or throw me to the ground while I'm handcuffed or something. And I think that's not an assumption based on incident after incident after incident African-Americans can often make. So, Toby, do you, do you think that part of white privilege also is something else that's kind of in the foundation of this story is that Philander Castile was a lawful gun-carrying Second Amendment advocate and that being black and being a lawful gun-carrying Second Amendment advocate is a different experience than being white and being a lawful gun-carrying Second Amendment advocate? Yeah. I mean, I I think the Second Amendment, it seems, again, like it it sort of barely applies, particularly to African-American men. And I know, um, I'm not going to be able to remember the name. There was a a young man who was shot, I think, in a Walmart when he was holding a BB gun and, and talking on the cell phone. And he was shot and killed. And very soon after, in a in a community that wasn't that far away, like obviously, you know, mentally disturbed white guy with a an M sixteen or some big big weapon was sort of ranting and raving, and you know they put in the time to like talk him down and bring him in when he was clearly like he was a danger. This kid in Walmart wasn't. So yeah, the, the Second Amendment. <laughs> I, I don't think is enforced in a way that is equal. One of the things I think is really interesting about the story that they tell here is about the training that Yanez received. And Kevin, I know that one of the things that's indoctrinated in you, and um, I don't think it's... In me? Yeah, and I don't think it's bad for me to say this, is you're the kind of person who will talk about, you know, that the scariest thing that the officer has to do every day is like pull over somebody and you that's don't know what's going to happen. That's statistically the most dangerous well, thing to do, sure. It, yeah, but that's also like... A narrative that is part of the culture that mm. cops are being threatened all the time, and that the most, you know, one of the, the most dangerous things they have to do is pull somebody over, and that their life could be in, in danger at any moment. When I hear 
this training and they play a little tape of one of the trainings that's been posted on YouTube and they talk to the trainers and then mm-hmm. the reporters are not allowed to go. I hear what sounds to me like a stoking of that fear that officers should assume that everybody they encounter is out to kill them. And they should assume, and I think the guy even says in the video, the people who are out there now are better trained to kill you than they've ever been, like in the history of the world. Something like that, that to me sounds insane and also designed to really play up this idea that cops are being threatened all the time and they need to be on guard and they need to be ready to shoot. And I'm curious to know, you know, as somebody who, you know, you were a reporter and I know that reporters and I guess like reporters and cops aren't in bed together. It's nothing like that. But like mm-hmm. that you do ha- you have gotten a lot of information from police and you know all those statistics. And I think that you sort of have it in your blood to, to sort of take that perspective. When you hear that kind of training and when you hear that sort of attitude being sort of further indoctrinated in, in young, inexperienced cops, does that concern you at all? Would you rather they not have any training in that specific area on how to appropriately use deadly force, what the rules of engagement are? I'm not sure that the rules of engagement in that training are, are you saying that they are appropriate. That's how are, I feel. Are you saying going it. through TSA makes it worse to fly? Makes it worse to be in the airport, that's for sure. <laughs> like, <laughs> look, I, I think one of the things that goes unnoticed and I'll just talk generally here I don't I don't want to apply this to any specific case look when we talk about for example soldiers who come home from overseas mm-hmm. and have been in dangerous situations and have been in situations where around the clock there is no release of the tension they come back with PTSD and we're like oh I understand that I'm sympathetic to your PTSD and what we don't seem to get is that there's also a level of PTSD associated with being a patrolman. And I'm not saying it's like, oh, Precinct 7 is the same as Afghanistan. But when I go to work, nobody is yelling at me. And I'm not going to have to put my hands on anyone. And I am not going to go see a kid killed in a car accident and then go from that to a a domestic disturbance and then where maybe somebody's threatening me and I got to wrestle somebody to the ground. And that's just Thursday. Mm-hmm. And you do this year after year after year, and that gets to some people. I don't think a lot of cops go into it because they want to, like, hurt other people. Some of them maybe do. So I, I went to high school with a couple guys with the, who became cops because Napoleonic Complex. I'll be the first to say that. <laughs> the stress what were their of names? That, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, yes. <laughs> but, the, you know, the stress that is involved with that, I mean – Unless you are a police officer, eventually you're going to start getting paranoid about the dangers that you face. If somebody came into your office and yelled at you once, it would be a story you would tell for the rest of your life. But again, that's one day for a cop. Right. And we ask them to do that. We, we need them to do that. I agree with that. I just wonder why why does it manifest itself again and again and again with violence against African-Americans. Good question, yeah. You know, if, if that's... I don't think it legitimizes any particular action, but I think it's a legitimate way of looking at the stress that police are under. But the way the way it manifests is bullshit. Getting back to Yanez for a second. Laura Brecker, one of the interesting things we hear in this podcast is another police stop 
that Yanez makes that goes oh, yeah. wrong. I think this was the best part of the tape that I heard. Why, why don't you time. go ahead and describe it and, and tell us what you thought about it? So this is the one where he had, we have dash, like, cruiser cam with audio. Obviously, we're only hearing the audio. He had pulled over a driver. He was, like, on the side of the road writing a ticket when another car came and, like, almost hit him. And he hops in his cruiser and chases after this car, and it ends up in this chase. But the part that was so, you know, he same thing, he just, he, like, went like way over the top with his reaction like it was it was it was obviously a very scary situation but it was sort of disproportionate in terms of the length of time that he was so upset so we hear him hyperventilating almost breathing after this is all done and it went on i want to say it was like 11 or 12 minutes i mean it was it was just an inc- yeah yeah very long time and to me this was probably the most interesting kind of window into this police officer because we we learned about his training we learned about his high school and everything but this just seemed like something was off something was going on was it that he had been so hyped up going through the police academy and going through you know his initial work as a police officer about scary stops and people being dangerous that he had, you know, gotten himself just so built up ahead of time that he just like lost his mind? Or was there something else going on that, you know, mentally didn't get picked up while he was going through police training? It was so it it had left a lot of questions as to, you know, why this police officer reacted the way that he did during this traffic stop. But I found this part just fascinating. I don't know if anyone else did. Oh, I did I was, too. Yeah. I did too. To me, it's, it spoke to his fitness because you, you do hear the other officer on the tape like kind of like amazed that he can't calm down. Like he's like, calm down. And it's not easy to get a job as a cop, right? I mean, if, if you know anybody who's ever like been in charge of hiring cops, there's typically like a bunch of personality tests and like uh, they do lie detector tests typically. And like you'll see people who graduate from with a criminal justice degree and they're unable to get jobs as cops in big cities and they start out in smaller towns, which was Yanez's story, by the way. Like he worked at Chipotle first and as a bouncer after graduating college. So it did, I think, point to potential like, does he have the constitution? To, to, Hard to know that to be, to be actually on the job. Exactly, right? yeah. exactly. And uh, and I thought that was really interesting too. But the other thing that also for me as a narrative thing that sticks out is the fact that Yanez is also a person of color. And I wonder how much of the fact that the state is willing to prosecute him for this may or may not be related to the fact that he is also a person of color. I.e. if you were a white cop. Is it easier for a prosecutor to go after a cop who's a person of color than it would be for them to go after a white cop. Because that is one thing that he has in his check boxes that a lot of other cops who've committed similar shootings do not have in, in their list of uh, factors <laughs> that he is a person of color. And in some ways, I think it allows the prosecution to sort of say race wasn't a factor. This was just a an irresponsible shooting. And I think in some ways it makes it easier for them. Am I the only person who wonders that? You know, it's funny. I didn't really. Now that you say it, I can. I can definitely think about that. When I was listening to it, I was. I was surprised, and I felt like part of what drove this forward was the governor, who was so vocal and so out there in terms of assuring the people that were protesting and the, after this happened that something was going to happen. I felt like that sort of political pressure 
played some role in in something happening in that. Right. And the the protest stuff was really interesting. I love the tape of the reporter calling into his editor saying, (laughs) I've never... It's like 2 a.m. Yeah. Yeah. That was a great way to use tape that they didn't have. Right, Kevin? Yeah. It was a good way to, to illustrate the scene. Sure. All right. Well, as we alluded to before, this is two podcasts. We have the four episode story arc and then we have the trial updates. Toby, have you listened to any of the trial updates? I have. They're not as polished or compelling, I guess. In some ways, how could they be if they're just reporting right after this stuff happens? I, I think they're fine, and I, I'm, I listen to them, and I'll continue to listen because I think it's an interesting case. But it is – there's a completely different feel. It's not as polished or well thought out. It's more them just kind of reacting, sort of like we do, I guess. Well, Laura, what do you think of, of the trial update episodes of 74 Seconds? I don't like them. I, I've only ma- I only made it through one of them, and it was the jury selection one, mm-hmm. and I struggled to get through it. And I feel like I know it's only jury selection, but, you know, if you have somebody like Bill Rankin, and he's covering – Breakdown was kind of similar to this in the format where we're getting the preview and then we're hearing the trial. If you have some kind of like – insight into the characters and the courthouse and how the judge operates and how the different people operate, you can kind of jazz up this kind of dry jury selection time period. And I haven't listened. Maybe the next one's not quite like that. But after listening to this very interesting story, and then it was kind of like just changed direction so completely, I, I had a hard time with it. Kevin, what do you think of how they're doing the uh, the live trial update episodes of the show? It's funny because it it feels more like it's written as a local radio news update. Reporter 2A. Report, well, yeah, it's like the information that's there is meant to be consumed Wednesday afternoon, right. for example. And that's not the way people consume podcasts. It's also very odd when they keep saying, like, I don't know if it's to build urgency, but it's like, uh, John's uh, on his way back from the courtroom. Right. Okay, he's here now. And it's like, okay, we're back. It was like, you didn't really go anywhere. <laughs> it's a podcast. But yeah, and the, the difference between Breakdown's Bill Rankin and this is that Bill Rankin had audio. So you could hear different things going on in the courtroom and it could illustrate the points that he's making as opposed to just sitting across from one or two reporters talking about what happened and it became very dry and it also reminds me why public radio news does a lot of great things but they really suck ass when it comes to covering crime. Well it also has a lot to do with the covering of a day-to-day. They're obviously not allowed in the courtroom to tape. That's clear. Yeah. I don't feel like these two ways. you think that's a flawed idea to start with. I think it's a good idea if you can bring something more than you would also be able to read in a newspaper article mm-hmm. about the same thing that happened that day, yeah. Yeah. right? The four episodes that preceded this were so strong. I was actually interested in what was going to happen at the trial now. Like, I want to hear, like, when Diamond gets on the stand, like, boom, I want to hear what happened. And even in the episode where they talked about her getting, she was like one of the first witnesses, I think she was the first witness that got on the stand, or one of the first witnesses. And it's like, the episode in which she gets on the stand they didn't talk about that until like 10 or 15 minutes in. I'm like, no, they need to open. Well, because they were going chronologically with, and it was opening I, arguments. I just chronologically does not matter. Okay. They need yeah. to, I mean, yeah. the, the, the opening arguments, they talked about the, the tape that they played. Yeah. That was great. But it took them like five minutes to get to, hey, what was on the tape? So the thing that Bill Rankin did with his coverage of especially season two of Breakdown, the Justin Ross Harris case, which this would really benefit from is having somebody other than these two reporters in the studio with their producer talking Mm -hmm. about the trial. They need someone to provide some context like, 
What the hell yeah. does this mean? Right, Laura? Yeah, no, exactly. And that's what I'm saying. Like, that was what was kind of what I was trying to get. At. It's like Bill Rankin has this like tremendous base of people that he knows in the court system. And so he had like so-and-so, the defense attorney from another county, who would be like, well, the judge has is known for doing this. And so the strategy when you're before this judge is this, and this prosecutor likes to do this. So you're kind of building the story of the trial. And, you know, as you're talking about this, I'm thinking about what I was saying in the beginning, like, did they do this too soon? If they knew they weren't going to be able to have audio from the courtroom, and they weren't going to get people that were really willing to talk before they testified, like maybe this story was told before it's time. Well, I just, I, you know, going back to the Bill Rankin thing, I just think he's he's, he's a very good storyteller. In addition to being a, a journalist, you just get the feeling if you're, if you're at a bar having a beer with him and he was going to tell you something that happened to him, he would tell a very engaging story. These guys are more typical journalists. They do the reporting, they get the facts, they, they kind of give them to you. It's a different talent, I guess. Bill was also giving a, a week-long roundup Right. He wasn't doing day to day because some days are better than others, you know, and of course, like you said, he also had the audio tape. So, again, it just ends up being like, OK, at lunchtime, we're swapping out another reporter. Listen, that one's coming in. It's a good idea to do a yeah. podcast that's dropping daily. To, and that's, I don't know if it's daily. I think they're planning to do it weekly, yeah. but they're dropping it more often. Yeah. Like if it not Syed gets another trial, if there were a 15 minute podcast that dropped every night after that trial, gajillions people would tune in because whoever was doing it would have probably a point of view. It would be like Rabia saying like, here's what I think about what happened today. Or it would be Sarah Koenig sort of saying like, here's what we know. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It wouldn't be just the same reporting that they would be doing for their on air, but just like kind of blown up as a reporter two way. It would be more, it should be more, but I don't want to like tip my hand before we do the review part. Cause we now all have to say like to our listeners, would you recommend that they check out 74 seconds uh, in part, in whole, thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs sideways? I'd love to know what you guys think. Laura, I'm going to start with you. I'm going to go thumbs sideways. Uh, I loved the first four episodes. They were really interesting. They were easy to follow. It provided a good background about the case. It, you know, there was some good tape. So you kind of had a good feeling going into the trial that you knew what this case was about. The sideways is because once, as we said, we get into the trial, it really lost me. Yeah, I'm also going to go with Laura, except I'm going to say thumbs up for the first four episodes and thumbs down for everything after that. But I'm not going to repeat everything Laura said. What you say was on point. I loved and enjoyed the first four episodes. Did not enjoy anything after that. So what about you, Toby? Where do you land? I think I give it a thumbs up definitely for the first four episodes. And, you know, I kind of take a look at it as... In like serial, when people listen to that and then were really sort of engaged in the case and then they wanted to find out more and then you have undisclosed and us talking about it and, and all these other things. It seems like what the podcast basically does is after the first four episodes, it's kind of sort of conveniently giving you that information if you want to follow the case beyond that. But I, I think you can listen to the first four and just stop there and read about it in a couple of weeks when the trial's over. What about you, Kevin? I'd say don't subscribe to the podcast. Check out the feed, and you can definitely very clearly see where those first four episodes are. <laughs> Download those to your device. Maybe as the daily updates go on, maybe wait until we get to closing arguments. If you see it in the in the newspaper or whatever, 
go back and listen to that. The one about opening uh, arguments was kind of interesting, but I would probably say, no, you don't need to listen to those. You probably should listen to the first four episodes of 74 Seconds. It's tight. It's very interesting. It really humanizes both the victim and the officer involved in this and gives some good background about the story, and I think it has you know much better focus. And speaking of better focus, we need to tell you about Hubble contact lenses. <laughs> God. Are you tired of overpaying for uncomfortable contact lenses? Yes. And do you overwear your contact lenses to save money? Yes. Let me turn the microphone over to somebody who wears contact lenses and can tell you more. That's right, because Hubble contact lenses does it differently. What if I told you you get a fresh pair of contact lenses every single day for $30 a month. That is less than a dollar a day when you average it out over a year. You yeah, know that, right? I mean, not in February, but yes. Do the math. It's a dollar a day, they say. It's actually a little bit less. It's about half of the price of other brands. Go to HubbleContacts.com. You can get your two first weeks free. I loved ordering these contacts. I am a daily contact lens wearer, as you know. I am 100% blind, unless I put my contact <laughs> lenses in. And uh, the, one of the reasons why I've never ordered my contacts online before is because you go to one of those other online contact lens ordering services, and you enter in your prescription and all that stuff, and then they say, you know, you have to get your doctor to give you something to, like, send them. And it's like, ugh, well, I'm not going to do that. Like a like a prescription? Yeah, but you the, have to, like, get your the... doctor to do it. because oh. and, and it's just a it, whole onerous part, right, Laura? It's like when you're, like, trying to order, like, some sort of dog or cat medicine online. It's the same process. Yeah, it's a pain in the yeah. ass, frankly. And when you go to Hubble, you just tell them who your doctor is. They have all of the eye doctors like in their database on their website. You start typing it in, your doctor's name pops up. They get your prescription from your doctor for you. You don't have to do that. They literally get it for you. Wow. It's extraordinary and it's a great, great experience. So the, you can get quality daily lenses for half the price of the other guys. Contacts are expensive because just a couple of companies control most of the market, but Hubble is disrupting that. They are disrupting it. They sell directly to you. It has never been more convenient and affordable to get contact lenses through the mail. There's no more overpaying, no need to overwear. You can just order more when you run out. What you want to do is go to HubbleContacts.com to get your first two weeks of contact lenses for free. That's 15 pairs for free just for our listeners. You cannot beat this deal. You'll be able to see. It'll be free. You will love it. Go to HubbleContacts.com. Get 2020 vision for half of the price. That's is that 1010 vision, or am I, is my math wrong on that? 2020. At half the price? Oh, no, it's still 2020. Okay. I think half the vision would be like 40-40. I, I think that's just <laughs> metric. 40 yeah. I don't know. But you will get 2020 vision at half the price. It's HubbleContacts.com. H-U-B-B-L-E. Contacts.com. Great. Anything else, Kevin? Yeah, I mean, when we talk about people who tell great stories, some of those people are in your own family. Are they? they yeah. They really? Have, they, yeah, they are. <laughs> in my family? Okay, well, maybe more in my family. Yeah, let exactly. me tell Toby's you, Toby's family, probably. Let me tell you a little bit more about what's going on with my family and our subscription to StoryWorth. Because there are definitely timeless treasures that I want to preserve, stories from my parents that I want to pass down to our kids that's why we have StoryWorth. All you have to do is purchase a subscription for someone you love, and each week StoryWorth sends them an email with a question for them to respond about their life. 
and then they reply. They can either write an email back, or if they can't use email or too busy, they can call and dictate their answer. And after a year, they take all these stories and they're bound together in a beautiful keepsake book. So I've been having my mom do this. You have? Yeah. And Sharon? Yeah. <laughs> And it's really great. Some of the questions, and you can like pick some, or you can write some other ones. And I, I Storyworth suggested a few. And one was like, "Where did you go on vacation as a kid?" She responded to that. One was, "What was your grandfather like when you were young?" Which is great because I knew my great grandmother, her grand, but I never knew my great grandfather. And the best one I think was like, "What was your first? Who was your first boss?" And so she told the story about her, her first job was when she was a lifeguard at the city pool. And about the kid that she rescued, she pulled a kid out who was drowning, did CPR, and the kid threw up in her mouth, got up and ran away, and she never saw him oh, again. Oh, God. Ew. Poor Sharon. I know. But what a great story, though, right? <laughs> it's so gross. Okay, so maybe that's not the, it's my favorite story. <laughs> I'll never look at your mom the same way again. Yeah, but it's, it's really a great way to bridge the gap between families, geographically, generation-wise, or just, a, you know, a, a simple way to learn more about your relatives, and it does make a great Father's Day gift. So for $20 off your StoryWorth subscription, just visit storyworth.com slash crime. That's storyworth.com slash crime. Crime. Speaking of crime, now it's time for something I like to call the The crime crime of of the the week. week. The night ended on a sour note for a man who was arrested at a karaoke bar. Ron Doobie Jr. was picked up on an outstanding warrant. He missed his court date in southern New Hampshire on charges he failed to register as a sex offender. I didn't realize this was so local. It's local to us, Minnesota Public Radio. It's so great. Doobie called the DJ at the Glenview Pub in northern Massachusetts. He said he was looking forward to singing karaoke but wasn't able to do so in New Hampshire for unspecified (laughs) reasons. He called the DJ in advance. It seems a little presumptuous. Right? Are you having? Are you doing karaoke Saturday? <laughs> cool. I can't wait to be there. One of the reasons may have been because Doobie had just been featured on television as the fugitive of the week. <laughs> wow! But like the Bad village, call. like the village people said, you can't stop the music. That wasn't the village people. That was Rihanna. The village people's can't. You can't stop. Those the name of the no movie. one knows Isn't that. Michael Jackson. No. no. But like Rihanna said. You can't stop the music. That's not what she said. She said, please don't stop the music. (laughs) I know, but I'm not going to quote the village people like you wrote here. Doobie, doobie, doo. Doobie went to the bar anyway, was recognized and taken into custody to add insult to injury. He never even got the chance to sing. (laughs) (laughs) So, Laura Bricker, if police were to storm into a karaoke bar and arrest you, what song would you be performing when they did so? I have to tell you, I have my standard karaoke song that I always go to. It fits the situation. It is I Feel Lucky by Mary Chapin Carpenter. You have a standard karaoke song. Like, I just am telling you, like, we're going to go do some karaoke next time we're all gathered. I swing the microphone sometimes. What about you, Toby? What karaoke song would you be belting out when police stormed in to arrest you in a karaoke bar? The chances of my, like, singing in a karaoke bar just in general are pretty low. (laughs) You Um, don't have a standard karaoke song, Toby? I don't. I don't. And I, you know, I was trying to think about if I did have to, like, you know, I fought the law by the clash, <laughs> or I shot the sheriff, Bob Marley. Yeah. Um, and I, 
I guess I settled on going back to the 80s, Turn Me Loose by Loverboy. Oh, that's nice. good. I was thinking, so I ran. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Flock of Seagulls. Yes, exactly. What about you, Kevin? What would you be doing in a karaoke bar if the police came in to, to, to arrest you? There's no doubt if I were arrested doing karaoke, it would be us. It would be with me. It would be you, and we would be doing Love Shack. Our standard karaoke Our standard song. karaoke song. Because Toby Ball, you I have would say to the, have but by a myself, karaoke song. Yeah, but by myself, it's the Humpty Dance. But with us, it's it's uh, it's uh, Love Shack. How many times do you think we've done that in karaoke? We haven't done it in a long time. Yes, but how many times have we done it? We did it like a dozen times, and then when we found out like there were places where like you could win twenty bucks. <laughs> It's like, we could go do this, and we could win. Because we did it so many times. Yeah. We like, like when we used to do trivia nights, and we used to like pay for all our drinks because we were doing trivia. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we'd actually win, but we're, we have done it a lot. We don't need to do grifters. stupid words. <laughs> Laura Brigger, before we wrap things up for the week, uh, is there a cat of the week this week? Yes, and this is going to be, I'm going to read you the uh, nomination email for cat of the week this week. This was a great one. So it is from Lieutenant Colonel Kel Hannum, United States Air Force, and he is Thank you for stationed. Your service. Yes, and so he and he listens to us. So he's from Vermont originally. On purpose? <laughs> I know. His wife introduced him to the podcast. He's been deployed to Kabul and has been listening regularly while he's on the treadmill at the gym. Sometimes cracking up and making the folks around him wonder what he's listening to. <laughs> so he says his nomination for Cat of the Week, we actually have several. The base I'm on here has a feline force protection program which he mainly traps and captures feral cats, vaccinates them, spays and neuters, and then returns them to the base. Yes. Um, So the idea is that the cats will keep the rodent populations in check and will also help keep other feral cats away. Uh, He says apparently cats are territorial, so they will keep the other feral cats away, minimizing risk of rabies and other diseases. Um, So if you want to check out, they have a Facebook page. You can go look at these cats at Feline Force Protection Program on Facebook. That's incredible. That's a really that good awesome? cat of the week. Yeah. A military I cat. That's got to be one, one squared away cat. I mean, it's got like haircut, yeah. high and tight, I bet. It's feral though, so I don't I don't think so. Hold on, I think. Was Stampy was a feral cat. That's how we got him. He that was cat's been kitten. doing push-ups. Stampy yep. chases your Stampy. dog around the <laughs> yeah. forest. No one would call him high and tight. <laughs> yeah, not anymore. Well, so, uh, anyway. Laura, that's his chlamydia. <laughs> Laura, next time somebody <laughs> wants to nominate their pet... For pet slash cat of the week, how can they reach you online? Uh, it's at Laura Bricker. And Toby Ball, if somebody wants to tweet to you, maybe suggest what your standard karaoke song should be. Because by the way, Toby, everyone should have a standard karaoke song. Get one. How can they find you on Twitter? At Toby Ball NH. Now, Kevin Flynn, if our listeners want to reach you online on Twitter, perhaps, how can they do so? You can tweet to me at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to connect with me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. The show is also on Twitter at Crime Writers On. You can also find us on Facebook and chat with other fans there. If you go to our website, sign up for our newsletter. Buy stuff using our Amazon link. Toby, we got to bring back some Amazon items next week. What do you say? Send me the list. I will do so. It doesn't cost you a penny to buy stuff on Amazon, but a little piece of that goes to help pay for the show. If you listen on iTunes, rate and review this show. It helps us stay on the charts. While you're there, subscribe to our other shows like HGTV and Me and, of course, Radio Free Dystopia and These Are Their Stories, the Law & Order podcast. 
Our line producer, he's very handsome. His name's Henry Lavoie. Our theme music was performed by the New York Sky Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. This show was recorded in Square Egg Studio at Partners in Crime Media. It used to be called Studio C, and before that, it was a closet where we hid our kids' Christmas gifts under a bunch of moldy coats. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. You ready, Kevin? If you see a faded sign at the side of the road that says 15 miles to the... Love Shack! Love Shack, yeah, yeah. I'm heading down the Atlanta Highway Looking for the as big as a whale and we're heading on down to the love shack i got me a chrysler it seats about 20 so hurry up and bring your jukebox money the love shack is a little old place where we can get together love shack baby love shack baby love shack baby Sign says, stay away fools, cause love rules at the love shack. And it said way back in the middle of a field, just a funky old shack. And I gotta get back, glitter on the mattress, glitter on the high. Partners in crime media. Thanks again to our sponsor, Kopari. Mm. Kopari is one of my favorite things this summer. It's a line of body products made from 100% organic coconut oil. Say aloha to your best skin and hair this summer with Kopari. Go to koparibeauty.com slash crime to get 20% off your order. That's Kopari, K-O-P-A-R-I, beauty.com slash crime, crime for 20% off. Kaparibeauty.com slash crime. Slash crime.